Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. I, I'm lost. Are you lost, you? Oh, well, I found my way here, so that's a start. Excellent. We have some science for you to get lost in today. Uh, my name is Chris, and today I am I'm going to be looking at artificial intelligence. Um, and how does it work? Spoiler alert, we don't really know. Well, I don't know, but... Um, <laughs> you think some people might figure it out? Generally, we're trying to figure it out, which is kind of... We built this thing, and now we've got to figure out we, how it works. We've got to find out how it thinks. Well, considering we don't really understand how we think, it's pretty... It's, it's a tough call to figure out how something else thinks. Yeah, but you think we built it, that we should know? Eh, mm. just got lucky. Okay. What about you, Stu? Well, I'm going way back in time to when intelligence sort of, I guess, by any definition, first appeared. So I'm looking at early humans... Um, and there was a lot of different kinds of early hominins who were the early kind of people-ish looking people. Um, but some of them didn't make it and some of them did. Some of them became Homo sapiens, which is us. But there was a whole bunch of different kinds who didn't last. And it's always been a question, why didn't they last? They were they were almost, well, they, they look very similar to us. They seem to be able to do the same things as us. But what happened to them? Where did they go? And uh, some researchers think they might have an answer, and it's probably that they're more like Fred Flintstone than they were like, I don't know, some other smart kind of caveman. Encino Man. Encino Man. He yeah. was pretty smart. Yeah. Yeah. He found the mummy. Mm. Great. Well, I look forward to hearing <coughs> about that. And Claire, what have you got for us today? Well, today I am going to be taking a trip down the Nile to Egypt, obviously, and um, some new research that's just been discovered that shows that cheese is in mummy tombs, that mummies were buried with cheese. It is the oldest cheese ever mm. in the history of the world. The oldest cheese in the history of the world right. in ancient Egypt. Well, um, I look forward to hearing about that, but I bet it really stinks. <laughs> okay. On that note, on with the show. Yes, so artificial intelligence uh, and uh, deep learning is a term you may have heard of. Yeah, so this is this is sort of programming computers to pick up relevant information. Is that how it kind of works, the yeah, they, deep learning thing? They'll get it. They, they kind of teach themselves, but they do it by... Well, they sort of try to copy the way that the human brain works. And this is the all about taking intelligent machines. And so far, yeah, it's been very successful, but be, we don't quite know how the brain works. And so as a result, we don't quite know how these machines work either. Right. So, yeah. But this is this is the sort of stuff they've they've you know fed in a whole bunch of stuff into a computer and it can write its own stories and things like that. Is that the kind of thing that we're talking about? Yeah. So they have basically... Uh, algorithms and also the complicated circuitry um, to make it do these things. I, I'm not an expert, um, but I'm going to have a go at explaining kind of how okay. it works. So, yeah, what they use is these sort of – it's called machine learning, and deep learning is a form of machine learning. It's just deeper than normal machine learning. Um, and it uses artificial neural networks. 
Now, as the name suggests, uh, artificial neural networks are based on artificial neurons, which, of course, are brain cells. So they kind of have these, these things that essentially model these artificial neurons that model the way a, a brain cell works. So it takes multiple digital inputs and then it comes up with an output through some sort of algorithm. And you put a lot of these together in a network, and then you can make it kind of you can make it learn. You can um, you know basically have a completely different output come out from what you put in, depending on what you put in. Um, if you have multiple layers of it, that's when it gets deep learning. It becomes a deep neural network. So um, apparently, a shallow network or like a simple one might have two to three layers of you know of of these networks. Yeah. Um, deep one will have about one hundred and fifty or so. And so, is the is the simple stuff like you know how my phone can tell me that uh, I've got an appointment because I sent someone an email, or is that just them spying on me? <laughs> I'm not sure about that one. I mean, the, the, one of the things with these is the way they learn is uh, sometimes they will, you know, there'll be like uh, a programmed input. Like if you want to take it, take, teach it to understand an image, for instance, you may have a, uh, you may be able to program very precisely, this is how you understand an image and how that go to a computer. Or you might just give it some basics about the images you're looking for, and that's what you start for in the first layer. And then through getting things trial and error, essentially it learns what works and what doesn't, and it gets more and more through each layer, more and more refined um, the bits of the image that it's recognizing. Okay. So another example might be um, playing a game. Uh, these things have been very good at playing games, but uh, Atari games is a good way of thinking about it. Uh, so I guess, I guess you know, computer games are based on logic. So it should be easy for a computer, which is also based on logic, to learn a logical game. Well, it's interesting the fact that it's doing it, but it's not doing it by um, the logic necessarily. It's doing it by this, this learning process, this more human-type learning process. So you think about like a game like... Um, say, Space Invaders or something like that, where you move back side to side. Yeah. Uh, or Pac-Man, you move, you can move side to side and up and down. Yeah. Um, so there's only limited moves. Yeah. Um, so what happens, like, the, the computer can basically learn from nothing. It can essentially learn by trial and error just by making random moves what works and what doesn't work. Because there's also, there's a scoring system there. You yeah. Know, you win or lose, you, get, you actually get scores. Yeah. And so the, the computer then learns to optimise its strategy and how to actually play the game. I can, assume, I can assume that the computer's got more patience than I do because I just get very bored with video games pretty quickly. Yeah, I don't know whether you can speed up the way, the way it learns. I don't know uh, how many game. times a second it can play tic-tac-toe. Yeah, that's like that sort of thing. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I spent, when I was a child, I spent many, many days playing Atari games. So oh, so did I, so did I. But learning new ones as I got older, I think I got less patient. Yeah. So yeah, that sort of thing is called um, reinforcement learning because yeah, you basically you're learning three iterations, reinforcing the way it learns, and this this is the way it learns to do things like um, uh, language translation by um, multiple goes at translating, it gets better each time. Say your voice recognition on your phone, where it basically learns to understand you better. Image recognition is, is kind of the big one. Um, you can actually you can make these um, neural networks in two dimensions, so each layer is like a two dimensional layer. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, it's good at recognizing images. And you've seen that and say how Facebook might recognize you when you're in a photo. Um, but anything that requires an image, so it might be like spy satellites or you know CT scans and medical things, or you know a camera mounted on a self-driving car, for instance, right. needs to be able to recognize what's in the world around it. Now, sometimes these things don't work though. Like you get problems, like you like the self-driving cars might make a mistake, or there was that there was that example of the the chatbots that went to learn from from nothing, just learn from being on the internet, and they turned racist because the internet is racist. Yeah. Yeah. Trouble is, because these things are learning themselves, basically teaching themselves by all this input that's coming in, 
it's very hard when things go wrong for us to know what's actually going wrong, why it is making these weird decisions. Um, so it makes them a bit hard to control. It makes them hard to, to troubleshoot in that sense. Um, and because these things got so complicated, they're kind of a, a black box they're considered. But it, more than that, the practice of programming AI has been likened recently to alchemy, as in there's kind of all these formulas and processes that they put into them that they don't really know why they work, just other people have found they work, so they try them and they assume that they work. And everyone's doing this stuff. No one quite knows what it does. So now, as a result, people are trying to understand. They're doing things like, um, so they added all this complexity they think will make these programs work. Um, so now some people are like stripping back the complexity and to see until basically until it breaks. That's called ablation studies. Um, there was an example of like a, a language translation program where they had all these like bells and whistles on it. So they just tried to remove most of the bells and whistles and they found it actually worked better without the, the bells and whistles. And so they didn't really know what those bits were doing because they weren't helping, um, but no one really knew. So did they, what, did they just keep adding things onto it without seeing if they had an improvement? Or? Yeah, people just go, oh, this is what we've used before in our other neural networks. We'll just add these things in and I hope they work. Okay. And then there's other one, and there's a recently published example. This is another kind of related way of doing it. Um, and this was like looking at Atari games. So they were seeing how these computers play the, play different Atari games, and they wanted to figure out how it was actually doing it, like what sort of strategy it was using. Um, so what they did is they blurred parts of the screen on the basis that if the computer was really looking at that, what was going on in that part of the screen, if they blurred it, then it would stuff up its game. Right. So, for instance, um, this computer was very good at playing Space Invaders. Yeah. So they blur different parts of the screen to work out where it's focusing. What they basically discovered was that it was kind of aiming at some aliens in the bottom left-hand corner, and that was its strategy to like focus on one bit, which is kind of how you play Space Invaders. You yeah, know? you do have to, you have to kind of focus on the on a fixed point on the screen yeah. and keep shooting at that spot. That's yeah. how it works. And yeah. it turns out that's what the computer was doing. Well, it learned learned the best way to play. Um, it wasn't very good at Ms. Pac-Man though, and so oh. when they they then they tried the same technique to work out what it was focusing on, and they found out that what it wasn't focusing on was the ghosts. Uh, and so by ignoring the ghosts, it was losing the game. So what was it focusing on? The the, the, the pellets that they eat? I, or? I, I don't actually know. Yeah, oh, maybe the pellets and the cherries and sort of stuff. So yeah, they... Um, so the, again, this is a strategy the computer has taught itself by, you know, what it was in its trial and error, what it was found it was working. Um, so you kind of... You know, how you go from there to actually teaching it the point of the game and saying, oh, there's these things called ghosts you need to worry about. You know, how you actually hack the, the program and teach it about mm. something like that, that gets a bit more complicated. But look, I do find it interesting that as these artificial brains get closer in complexity to human brains, we understand them less. You know, it's like we have neuroscientists who are working really hard to understand how the human brain works, building models of the human brain or simpler brains. And now, presumably, we've got artificial neuroscientists trying to work out how the artificial brains work. So it kind of feels like in a practical sense, we're getting somewhere like these computers can do more and more. But um, it also feels like we're, we're learning less and less <laughs> as a result. In an understanding sense, we're in, still in the dark as much I, as we were. I guess it shows how complicated our brains really are, that you know, even when we, we make copies of them, we still don't get it. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So from the uh, cutting edge of intelligence, we're going way back in time to the origins, I guess, of intelligence. So first of all, the story of human migration is quite complex. Uh, we don't really know how exactly people moved through the world, but the basic idea, as we currently accept it, is that humans evolved in Africa and spread out around the world from that one point. 
Uh, one of the more complicated parts of the tale is that there were a couple of versions of human-like species that went out around the world from Africa before Homo sapiens pretty much took over every continent except Antarctica. So these are proto-humans? No, no, no. They're, they're collectively referred to as hominins. Right, okay. Not to be confused with homonyms, which is uh, about words that sound the same. Uh, no, 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 the, the hominins. So there was, a, there was a whole lot of them, all in the genus Homo, which is Homo sapiens mm-hmm. wearing that genus too. Um, some people have argued that probably... Um, the pan genus, which contains chimpanzees, might actually be the same genus, but there's just you know disputes about that. Yeah, and before we had Homo, you had um, Australopithecus, I think was the yeah. genus, wasn't it? Or? Yeah, they had they had a whole bunch of things. Yeah. But this is sort of you know you're talking quite, I guess, archaic science in a lot of ways. This is way before they had genetics or a real really good understanding of genetics, which kind of changed the focus of taxonomy as well so that once they had the idea of the genes they sort of have revisited a lot of this stuff oh we should talk about that one day you can tell us all about taxonomy and how things are being reclassified as a result of genetics because i'm sure as being a plant person you could have come across that oh all the time i mean i yeah i've had plants where i've had to learn the plant a number of different times because someone keeps deciding that it's uh you know that it's a different um Genus or even a different family in, yeah. in the case of plants, they keep changing as well. But back to the uh, back to the hominins. One of the puzzles for anthropologists and paleontologists is why these earlier species in the genus Homo didn't take over the world first. Um, they sort of spread out quite broadly, um, but they still disappeared. Yeah, uh, they they didn't get as well established as Homo sapiens. They've gone completely now. Um, So there was uh, a lot of speculation over the years about the demise of Homo erectus, who is a particular species that we are well aware of. There's a lot of fossil evidence of them. And And different parts of the world, aren't they? uh, Yeah, yeah, from sort of all from Africa through Europe and up into Asia. And um, they didn't make it to the Americas, I think, um, but they did spread out pretty, pretty broadly. So nobody's really sure why they kind of disappeared. Um, there are some theories that Homo sapiens had battled them and taken over their territory by force, um, sort of uh, we were tougher and more warlike or something like that, um, or that possibly diseases may have spread which they didn't adapt to or were unable to adapt to. Um, so there, there are a couple of, uh, you know, um, reasons why they might have disappeared. Uh, there's a new paper that got published from uh, researchers from the Australian National University that suggests that uh, possibly they died out because they were too lazy. Basically, they've found a, a site and they've had a, had a close look at it. So, look, the paper was published in PLOS One at the end of July this year, and it's called Aeschylean Technology and Landscape Use – at Dawadmi, Central Arabia, uh, and it describes a dig in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, so apparently, uh, well, the site is obviously relatively close to Africa. The Arabian Peninsula is sort of next door. To, but it's still technically out of Africa. It is out of Africa. They they had to go round the round sort of round the top mm-hmm. of Africa and out onto um, the Arabian Peninsula. Um, but apparently, there's not many early or there's not much 
early hominin research in the Arabian Peninsula. And there's obviously not that many sites to do this. It's, you can't just sort of, you know, use Google Maps to find one. You've got to actually dig these things up. But there was early occupation of the Arabian Peninsula, but it was a different place when these early hominins got there. It was a lot wetter and there was a lot more vegetation and over time it dried out and turned into a more desert-like environment. So the work of these particular diggers has been focused on the axe technology of the Homo erectus tribe which occupied the area they're studying during the Paleolithic era, which is the Stone Age. But the Paleolithic is, you know, a couple of million years long. It's not, it's not a very precise sort of period, but that also means that the climate and the environment changed can change quite a lot in that mm. in that amount of time. Um, so the Acheulean refers to so Acheulean technology refers to hand axe technology. So it's in, in archaeology. There's a group of uh, technologies of hand tools, particularly axes, it was common among the hominins throughout the Stone Age, uh, and it was relatively widespread. So they found examples of it up into Europe and, and into Asia as well. So a hand axe is like, just kind of like a, a rock with a cutting edge? Basically. Your hand? Yeah, basically that's what it is, is, is a sharp rock that okay. you use to chop things down and, okay. and, and you know, chop up bits of meat and whatever else, whatever applications you could apply it to, really. So the researchers found that the group that occupied the site they were investigating were capable of making simple hand tools, but they didn't work very hard at it, according to these researchers. So they found that there's higher quality tool making materials within short distances from the Homo erectus camp areas where they spent most of their time, but there's no evidence that they ever attempted to quarry that material or dig it up or break off better bits of stone off the off the stone that was that was obviously nearby and they'd probably walked past it but they didn't actually uh, make any use of it. And the evidence from their tools suggests they used only material they found in the immediate vicinity of where they lived. So they sort of just walked around and picked up stuff off the ground and went, "Oh, that's a good enough tool. We'll just we'll just use that as a as a hand axe." So it's um, like when you just basically go down the local convenience store because you can't be bothered travelling to the supermarket. Yeah, and you just buy a packet of TV snacks instead of going out and buying all the ingredients to make dinner. Right. Yeah, yeah something something along those lines. Um, but they basically didn't travel very far to look for things, whereas um, other early hominins, as in early Homo sapiens and some of the Neanderthals, they archaeologists and paleontologists know that they used to travel very long distances and quarry stone and carry them with them wherever they went and go back to particular places to get particular materials for these stone tools. But these Homo erectus that they're studying in... Um, the Arabian Peninsula didn't really go looking for anything anywhere. And even when it was nearby and they probably were aware of it, they, they didn't do anything with it. So they, they're saying that they weren't very adventurous. They didn't travel very far. They didn't go looking for anything new. They just kind of hung around in the same place. Uh, and the researchers think that their lack of innovation, so they didn't actually change the way they used their tools for the whole period that they were there. They weren't learning new ways to make tools or weren't coming up with new ideas for tools and the environment during the period changed around them and started to dry out and it got drier and drier and the uh the homo erectus dried up with them because they weren't 
according to the research, capable of adapting to the changes in their environment. Um, so there may be something in that for, uh, for us to think about into the future. Traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. So when you think of Egyptian mummies, you think of well, what do you think of, Chris? Dairy products. <laughs> You don't think of sarcophaguses, sarcophagi? I do. I think of wrappings. I think of yeah. I think. What of... about cop- Coptic jars? Is that what they're called? Those jars where all the um, the innards go on the outside. Something like that. Like yeah. The, uh, yeah. The organs. Yeah. Maybe hieroglyphics. Yeah. Um, and obviously, I mean, by the sounds of it, you think of cheese. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Possibly yogurt. Before this week or just since this new research has come out? Uh, mostly, yeah, largely since your introduction, but I, I want right. to find out more. Yes. Okay, well, most people probably wouldn't think of cheese, um, but you do now. Um, you see the term of Tamis, that's spelt P-T-A-H-M-E-S, Tamis, which was rediscovered in 2010, has recently been found to house the world's oldest cheese, oldest solid cheese. And that oh, is a... That's an interesting qualifier. That is a qualifier. Yes. There you go. I want to hear more about this qualifier. Yeah. Okay. But, Chris, don't even think that this cheese has gotten better with age because it hasn't. <laughs> anyway, more on that later. According to a, pu- a study published in ACS's journal Analytical Chemistry this week... The oldest solid cheese has ever been found. And um, to give you a bit of a background about Tamis, uh, the man with the cheese, so to, so to speak, he was the mayor of a place called Memphis, oh. Memphis, Egypt. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, clearly. Not Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can follow. Okay, I can understand great. the concept. Yeah, yeah. Um, this, this was during the 13th century BC. Now, his tomb was initially unearthed in 1885. But, alas, howling winds um, and some say a curse meant that the cheesy tomb uh, was lost under drifting sands after it was found in 1885. So they found the tomb and then there was a big sandstorm and then they lost the tomb. Yeah, for 130 years. So fast forward 130 years, and Thomas's tomb was rediscovered in 2010. Was it a was it a cheese curse or was it a curds? <laughs> see, see what I did there. Okay, that is number number two cheese pie. Oh, don't worry, okay, I, I'm working on it. Okay, I'm great. I'm I'm counting. I just, I just, just so you big, know, I'm counting. I just need a big rind up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, obviously everyone was stoked uh, that they refound the tomb in 2010, uh, and. After the excavation, a couple of years later, archaeologists found some broken jars at the site of the excavation as well. Now, one jar contained a solidified whitish mass, as well as some canvas fabric that might have been covering the jar or been used to preserve its contents. Naturally, the scientists wanted to analyse the whitish substance to determine exactly what it was, 
I think you know where this is going. So the first thing they did was dissolve the sample, purifying its protein constituents, and then analysed it using a bit of chromatography, a bit of mass mass spectroscopy um, or mass spectrometry. Mass spectrometry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, they were, um, to find out the protein, they were casing the joint. <laughs> Is that four? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, okay, I think that's me. I am. Um, anyway, the peptides, that, the peptides that were detected by these techniques show that the um, sample was a dairy product made from cow milk and um, sheep or goat milk. Oh, okay. Mm, mm. So the both of them, mm. Mm. Um, bovine and ovine. <laughs> anyway, the reason the researchers believe it was a solid cheese comes from the canvas fabric uh, that was holding the cheese. So the canvas, you know, that sort of canvas apparently was isn't suitable for a fresh cheese or anything too milky. It was better suited for a solid rather than a liquid. Uh, alongside, you know, this canvas though there were some chemical indicators which meant that the researchers believe it was in fact a solid cheese okay yeah obviously the next question is did they get the crackers out um well before they reached for the jets uh they tested the solid cheese for disease as you do when it's what hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old what what when was it when was it uh 13th century bc so that's like what thousand? That's, that's like, like two thousand three hundred years or more. No, three thousand no, three hundred years. Yeah, yeah, that's a long time. Yeah. Now, they found certain peptides in the cheese, suggesting that the cheese was contaminated with something called Brucella melitensis. So that's actually a bacteria that causes something called brucellosis. Uh, which is a disease, potentially deadly. It spreads from animals to people. Uh, it's it's not, you know, you don't see it a lot in Australia, but it does exist still in the world. Uh, typically, you get it from eating unpasteurized dairy products. And this is actually the first time and the earliest reported biomolecular evidence of this particular disease. So not only is this the earliest known cheese, but it's also the earliest known spoiled cheese right. that's going to it's going to lay sick. lay you on your back for okay. a couple of weeks. Yeah. So I want to know when you say it's the oldest hard cheese, is yeah. there is there an oldest soft cheese that you could name? Uh, no, no, oh, I don't okay. know. I mean, I just assume that soft cheeses are a lot easier to make than hard cheeses. So oh, okay. maybe like they, fresh cheeses. You mean? Yeah, like fresh cheeses. Just got to add mm. a little bit of vinegar to uh, warm milk and hey presto. Yeah, but like your yeah, you know, telegios and those sort of things which are Asian caves by monks, you know, they they're not fresh. Oh no, I'm I was thinking more your fresh oh, okay, cheese. Okay, yeah. But um yeah, no, look, that is an interesting question. Maybe maybe we need to do a follow up uh story. Oldest soft cheese. <laughs> <Oldest> soft cheese. <laughs> the evolution of cheese. Yes. Mm, mm. So this talk about ancient mummies had has me hankering not only for a bit of cheese, but for an ancient Egyptian listicle. So here you go, Chris. Here are your top five things other than cheese that have been found in ancient Egyptian tombs that you may or may not expect, depending on your level of interest in Egyptology. All right? We'll, we'll gauge that, yeah. Okay. So My, number- my interest <laughs> is quite hieroglyphic. <laughs> no, no. 
Oh, I'm shaking my head. Yes. Okay, number one, perfume. So pharaohs were buried with their favorite perfumes and oils made from very expensive materials. In fact, in Tutankhamun's tomb, there was still a little bit of perfume left in one alabaster bottle. And after archaeologists did tests, they found it was made from coconut oil and frankincense. Mmm, sophisticated. Mm. Mm. Number two, a giant fan made from ostrich feathers. Uh, obviously, it gets hot in the underworld. Uh, you need a way to cool yourself That's down. It? Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. No, I didn't know that either. Okay. Actually, I, I sort of debate this. Do you right. think inside a pyramid it would be pretty cool? I mean, it's made of like lots and lots of rock. Yeah, Surely I think that- te- the temperature would be fairly cool inside. Yeah, I think it would be like a fairly stable temperature. I don't actually know, but yeah, I think it would be a fairly good temperature. I think it would be hot. I think it would be like, you know, outside hot. No, no. But who knows? Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe... Maybe we need to look that up. Maybe we need to look that up as well. Um, But the ostrich feather fan was also found in King uh, Tutankhamun's tomb to keep him cool. Okay. Yeah. Maybe you just are more, um, less tolerant to the heat when you're dead. Um, Number three... Mm-hmm. Board games. So Tutankhamun was buried with an ivory travelling set of the game Senate. I don't know that one. No. <laughs> well, it turns out nobody knows actually how to play this game, but but it has a name. Yeah. So I guess someone just named the game based on what they found in the tombs. Well, they found the box, but the piece of paper that tells you. <laughs> the instructions weren't there. The instructions weren't there, yes. yeah. Um, yeah, so no one knows how it was played, um, but it looks like it could have been a two-player game with the aim of knocking your opponent off the board. So maybe sort of like a, a um, ancient chess. Mm, or mm. sumo. Mm. Um, number four, boats. Yeah. I've heard of this, I think, yeah. Oh, yeah. Some, some uh, pharaohs were buried with boats. In fact, Khufu, who built the Great Pyramid of Giza, um, was buried next to an enormous ship that was nearly 45 metres long. That's long. It's a big ship. Inside the pyramid? Or is that outside the pyramid? Next to the pyramid. Right. Mm. Um, And number five, the final thing um, that pharaohs took to the afterlife, well, of course it is, cheese dreams. (laughs) Naturally. That's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science, of course, is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Uh, we would love you to get in touch with us. Please send us an email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. We are also on Twitter. We are Lost in Science one And on Facebook, we are called Lost in Science on 3CR. Or you can find our podcast on iTunes or your various other podcast apps. If you do find us and you're able to give a review, please give us a good review as that, like, lifts us up in the search engines and people can find us better or you can just find us on the radio uh, once again same time every week when Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.